Stanford University. I would like to welcome you to the 45th Annual Carlos Kelly McClatchy Symposium uh, at Stanford. I'm Jim Fishkin. I'm the chair of the Department of Communication. And I could not have organized this without the advice of a number of colleagues, but I'd like to especially thank Phil Taubman, formerly of the New York Times, who's a uh, living brain trust for the department. And I uh, really appreciate his uh, sage advice on how to put this together. Um, I propose we move, and we will put this on the web. I think there's a lot of interest in other issues like bin Laden and other things, but this is really an important topic. So we're taping this, and I think hopefully it will reach a somewhat broader audience, and we're very grateful for the people who've come. Uh, our four speakers are David Leonard, who writes, writes a weekly column for the New York Times, The Economic Scene, and who just won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary in April. Susan Davis, who covers the Congress for the National Journal, and she previously wrote the Washington Wire blog for the Wall Street Journal. John Harris, who's the editor-in-chief of Politico, previously at the Washington Post for many years, and co-author of The Way to Win, Taking the White House in 2008. And my colleague David Brady, professor of political science, also at the Hoover, uh, institution, and he's one of the country's leading experts on the Congress, and he's author or co-author of many books and articles. Most recently, he is co-editor of a Hoover Brookings study of polarization in the Congress called Red and Blue Nation? Now, our subject tonight is a three-act drama that's unfolding before our eyes with a fourth, a kind of sequel whose shape is still be determined still to be determined, but that's influencing everything that is the 2012 election. The three acts that we want to focus on tonight are, first, the budget battle for 2011, recently completed with the threats of a government shutdown just averted. Second, the coming struggle over the debt ceiling, which is officially a struggle for May 16th, but obviously there are all kinds of ways to get a bit more time. Third, the 2012 budget, for which the House has already passed the uh, Ryan plan with all the contentions and targets that raises. And calculations about all three of these um, by the various political actors uh, have in mind the fourth element that I mentioned, the 2012 election. Now I want to raise some questions for discussion. Our panelists are all uh, very talented, and I don't presume that I could tell them what to say, so they will uh, say what they want. I'm hoping each of them will speak for 10 to 12 minutes, and then we'll open it up to interaction and questions from the floor. But the questions that I'd like to just put on the table are things like, first, how much of the budget battles is real, and how much is political theater played out for selected audiences of partisans? The 2011 battle involved a titanic struggle over a minuscule percentage of the budget. It left entitlements in the military largely unaffected, but threatened until the very last minute. I had to keep checking the news to see what was going to happen, but it looked like we were going to have a government shutdown over funding for Planned Parenthood. Now, as journalists, how can you put this in perspective, and why, and what are the partisan interests in leaving out 
so much in just focusing on this tiny sliver of the discretionary budget. Second, Republicans say if the deficits are not brought under control, there will be a financial Armageddon. Democrats say that if we play politics with the debt ceiling, we will have a financial Armageddon even sooner. A lot of disaster on the horizon. Are they both right? Or are they just speaking to their political bases? Republicans say that the Ryan budget plan now passed by the House is the first courageous attempt to take on entitlements to deal with the deficit. Democrats say that the short-term numbers do almost nothing for the debt. And what they do is taken back by a planned further extension of the Bush era tax cuts. Now, is the federal government really like the uh, Washington Redskins in the old George Allen days, whose owner famously said, they had an unlimited budget and they exceeded it? Or is it really not in such bad shape? I was struck that Nouriel Roubini, the famous Dr. Doom of the financial crisis, said, quote, the United States has the most manageable fiscal issues of any major advanced economy because federal, state, and local revenues as a share of GDP are very low. If you look at charts, they've fallen from about 20% of GDP in 1999 to 15% or so now. That means by historical and international standards, there is plenty of room to raise taxes. Ah, I said the unmentionable thing. But there's no political will to do so, even as part of some kind of generalized tax reform. The Ryan budget envisions an eventual version of the federal government where all spending apart from entitlements and interest payments would go from 12% now of GDP to only 3.5% eventually. If the military remains at current levels, there would be no room at all for the rest of the federal government. So is this a serious proposal? Is it a symbolic proposal? What is the real basis for making such a proposal? That's in the very long term. Now, is this the vision of government the public wants or will want? Now, in recent polls, the public, note this, trusts the Republicans more than the Democrats on the budget, even after the Ryan plan is out. Now, will that hold up when they know specifics? I don't know. What about the elderly, the swing voters of the midterms? It is notable that they prefer the Republicans on the budget by wide margins, despite all the noise at these town meetings. So in a world of contested facts and partisan expertise, how do you cover these issues beyond he said, she said? What hope is there for a confused public to come to judgment when campaign-style distortions enter, enter budget debates and every side has its own economist and when the real consequences uh, will affect the services government provides and the taxes people pay. So with that said, I'd like to turn it over to our first panelist. I propose that we move from the economic issues, try to get facts on the table. Um, the, then we'll dispense with the facts. No, no, no. <laughs> then we'll deal with the Congress, which Susan Davis is expert on. And then we'll deal with the broader political issues. And then if he's in character, David uh, will tell us why we're all wrong. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, that David. Uh, uh, David, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you for that nice introduction. Um, and I like the framing of it. Um, uh, the, 
this will not mostly, my 10 minutes will not mostly be about the media or even significantly about the media, but I, I will start there. And so the question is how do we deal with this getting beyond he said, he said, or she said, she said. Um, and that's a big part of what my job at the Times is. I, I write a column for the news pages, so it's somewhere in between a news article and an op-ed article. And a big part of my job is to not do uh, the he said, he said. The fact that each side can produce an economist uh, to, to spout its position doesn't mean that each side necessarily in every case has an equal claim on the facts. Um, some, in some cases one side has a better claim, in some cases the other does, in some cases we don't know. Um, and so what I thought it would, would help to do here is to give a little bit of a framework for um, what I think the deficit problem is um, in scope and, and what some of the most likely solutions are for it. And as a starting point, I think it's good to think about the fact that we really don't have one deficit, we have two deficits. Um, and they are quite different, although they're related, sort of like long-term and short-term interest rates are quite different, but they're related. We have a long-term deficit and a short-term deficit. Most of the attention, at least until, um, most of the attention this year, at least until Ryan's budget was on the short-term deficit. Nearly all of it was on the short-term deficit. And the short-term deficit is a serious problem. Um, uh, it is um, a problem that will not go away on its own um, unless we get far better economic growth than anyone is forecasting right now. Um, but it's, a, it's the kind of serious problem that we have some experience with. Um, it is not totally different in scope from the kind of deficits we had in the early 1990s. It is smaller than the kind of deficits we had in the late 1940s after World War II. Um, so I like to pick 2015, which is a few years out. And if you look at the, the most conservative projections, but not crazily conservative projections, we have to cut something like $400 billion in today's dollars from the deficit. Not to get it to zero, but you don't need a deficit at zero because an economy is growing over time. So one year's growth can basically pay off the previous year's deficit. So that's equivalent to about 2% of GDP. Um, by comparison right now, the Pentagon is about 4% of GDP, 4.5% of GDP. Um, Medicare is about 4% of GDP. And so in the short term, we're facing a deficit that's about 2% of GDP. We almost certainly can't get that through reforms to Medicare and Social Security, through reforms to entitlements. And so when you hear people, and I've said things like this, say that the deficit is really about entitlements, that misses something important, which is while it's true about the long-term deficit, which we'll get to in a second, it's not true about the short-term deficit. The short-term deficit can't really be about changes to entitlements because we're not going to start changing Medicare and Social Security two months from now. Changes to those programs will be phased in gradually. And so the solution to the short or medium term deficit really has to come from areas other than entitlements. It has to come from some combination of discretionary spending cuts, which is both the military and non-military discretionary spending, which is mostly social programs, or tax increases, or some combination of all of them. Um, you could plausibly get the whole thing through tax increases. You could plausibly get the whole thing through cutting discretionary spending, uh, some combination of military and non-military programs. You would not decimate the American military. You would not decimate the American safety net by doing that. You would require somewhat radical changes, but it is conceivable. 
The long-term deficit is completely different. It is much bigger. If we look even only out to 2030, which is about as far as you can go with any kind of decent detailed projections, then you get the size of the deficit already up to something like 5% of GDP. It is much larger. And that's because while the short-term deficit is driven by um, recent policies, most of them from the Bush administration, the Medicare pres prescription drug program, which was not paid for, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which were not paid for, um, the tax cuts, which were not paid for, and then secondarily by the decline in tax revenue and the increase in spending from the recession, and then thirdly from the Obama administration's programs. That's what the short-term deficit is. The long-term deficit really is about Medicare. It's about basically Medicare, 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 and Social Security. Medicare is by far the most important, or maybe a better way to say it is Medicare, 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 Medicaid, and Social Security. Um, and so to deal with that s size of a deficit, we can't really hope to do it simply through tax increases or changes to discretionary spending, be it the military or social programs. And the reason for that is that the military and social programs, as well as tax revenues, tend to grow with the economy, whereas Medicare will grow much faster than the economy, both because we're going to have growing numbers of people on Medicare because of the retirement of the baby boom, and even more importantly because of the growth in health care costs. And so if you're trying to close a deficit that is growing faster than GDP, with things that are growing with GDP, which is roughly tax revenue and discretionary spending, you have to basically keep doing more and more and more and more every year. You can't just raise taxes once and think you're going to catch up to Medicare. You have to keep raising taxes again and again and again. You have to keep doing deeper cuts again and again and again to take account for the fact that the deficit becomes a larger share of the economy each year for these reasons. And so that's really why the most important long-term changes do have to be to Medicare and Social Security. And again, Medicare is more important than Social Security because Medicare has these twin effects. It's got both the retirement of the baby boomers, so we have many more people in Medicare, but it also has the increase in health costs, which you can think of as a turbocharger of the Medicare deficit, whereas Social Security simply has the aging of the population. So, how are we going to get this done, and how are the two parties proposing to get it done? Neither has yet proposed anything that is um, an adequate solution. Neither party yet has a plan that would sufficiently get rid of the deficit. Not even the Ryan plan, which I'm going to praise in a few minutes, um, would get rid of the deficit. It would under his accounting, but his accounting is too optimistic for a variety of reasons. So neither party has a plan. And I think you often see journalists in a desire to be balanced to say neither party has a plan and either by implication or explicitly then suggest that the two parties are equal on this issue. But they're not equal on this issue. The Democrats have been more responsible than the Republicans over the last, I think we can say, maybe 18 years. I think the last point at which we had really serious Republican fiscal responsibility was President George H.W. Bush, who increased taxes, violating his no new taxes pledge, and who doesn't get enough credit for the surpluses of the late 90s. Bill Clinton gets, should get most of the credit, but he basically gets all of the credit. Um, 
And so I think the easiest way to think about how the Democrats have been more responsible than the Republicans is just to go through what they've done on the deficit. Bill Clinton raised taxes. He did it without a single Republican vote. Um, it cost many Democratic legislators their, their seats in the 94 midterms. Um, that tax increase played a very important role in reducing the deficit. Then, in conjunction with the Republican Congress, he held down spending. So maybe that's the last real Republican claim on fiscal conservatism in the, in the late 90s. Um, Clinton leaves Bush with vast surpluses. Bush comes in, and I already gave you the list of things that Bush didn't pay for. The Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, the Medicare prescription drug benefit, uh, and the tax cuts. Many of these had at least some Democratic support, but most of the support was Republican. Then you have the Obama administration come in. And um, while the Obama administration does not deserve an A for fiscal conservatism, they tried very hard to actually pay for health care reform um, through a combination of tax increases and spending cuts. They tried much, much harder than the Bush administration did, and they got much higher marks um, from CBO than the Bush administration did. They got such good marks, relatively good marks from the CBO, that Republicans have taken to denigrating CBO, basically saying the umpire isn't a good umpire anymore, um, which I don't think is fair to CBO. They make mistakes, but they try their best. Um, so if the problem we have now, I actually don't think is mainly this gap between the two parties on responsibility. I think it's that voters don't want the deficit solved. They say they want the deficit solved, but really what they want is they want their taxes kept no higher than they are now, and they want no cuts to spending programs that benefit them. And if you want those two things, you are in favor of higher deficits, period. There is no way we can have unchanged Medicare, unchanged Social Security, a military anywhere near the size that we now have, and no tax increases. That simply doesn't add up. And so when you look at the polling and you see the, the public's view of the deficit, it can lead you to a lot of pessimism. It can lead you to say, you know what, we're actually not going to deal with the deficit until the public starts punishing politicians who aren't serious about the deficit. Until the public starts saying, you know what, Barack Obama's pledge to not raise taxes on anyone making less than $250,000 a year and all of his other desire for social programs is simply not credible. Um, the public has to punish things like that, and it isn't yet doing so. And I think if you want to be pessimistic about this, if you want to be pessimistic about us getting to a crisis, that's the main reason to be pessimistic. If you want to be optimistic, and I try to be optimistic, um, here are, I think, the reasons for optimism. I think the Ryan budget is a reason for optimism. No matter how much you may not like aspects of it, no matter how much I don't like certain aspects of it, it is more arithmetically honest than anything the Republican Party had done in the last few years before that. I thought there was a good chance the Republican leaderships would wave, would wave their hands around about Medicare and Social Security and basically propose deep cuts only to Medicare, which is a program that affects the poor. Paul Ryan has come out with a budget that says, essentially, hey, if you don't want your taxes to go up, Medicare has to disappear. I consider that to be an honest budget in many ways, even if it contains some dishonesties, even if it contains some projections that are too optimistic. I think that is a sign of progress. I think much of what was in healthcare reform was a sign of progress. We can talk about that in more detail. And I think the fact is, economically, these are solvable problems. My colleagues who know much more about politics than I can explain why it may be really hard to do, but economically these are solvable problems. There are ways to cut military spending. There are ways to cut non-military social spending. There are tweaks that can be done to Medicare. We spend vastly more on health care than any country in the world. There are ways to do it differently. There are a lot of models out there, as in every other rich country but us. And then finally there are taxes. The long lesson of history is that as countries become richer, they tend to want more government services. 
When you can afford the basics, you want luxuries that the market doesn't provide on its own. You want a strong military, you want good schools, you want a comfortable retirement, you want health care even if you're not a profitable health care customer for the insurance companies. That is why over time taxes tend to go up. That is why we now pay taxes something like 18% of GDP once we get out of this recession compared to 2% of GDP a century ago. We are vastly richer than we were a century ago. Your taxes can go up and you can get richer. That's okay. And so if we simply look at the economics, it is possible to raise taxes from where we now are, as Noriel Rubini has said. It is possible to cut social programs and still have them be effective. It is possible to cut the military, and it definitely is possible to make changes to Medicare. And so when you put all this together, I think there are ways to solve the deficit. I'm not predicting we're going to get there without pain. I'm simply arguing that we could get there with only tolerable amounts of pain. <laughs> Well, thank you for that note of optimism. And now yes. Susan will tell us about the Congress, which may destroy that. <laughs> uh, thank you for having me here. I'm looking forward to hearing from your questions later. Uh, I think one of the ways that best understands how partisan it's become on Capitol Hill, especially when you're talking about these fiscal matters, is uh, Paul Ryan, a Wisconsin Republican who's the chairman of the House Budget Committee, who, as you discussed, wrote the budget document that the House approved recently. And when they unveiled it at this press conference on Capitol Hill, uh, he was asked about the political risks of it, and he said, point blank, this is not a budget, this is a cause. And I do believe right now in the Republican Party on Capitol Hill in particular, they believe that they see the political risks inherent in this. And that to me is a, a, a bit of a refreshing amount of candor coming from lawmakers, particularly from leadership, which I think a lot of times when you cover Congress, it's the rank and file that are saying, oh, I'm worried about where our party's taking us. And, and in this case, you have the leadership saying, we're willing to take these risks because we believe the threat facing this country is so great uh, that if we don't do anything, it's far more catastrophic than the fact that we could lose some seats. Now, when we talk about why it's so politically risky, and as David alluded to, I think the two things that you're hearing the most about right now that make it that risk is what it does to Medicare and Medicaid. Um, it's probably safe to say that Medicare is the most beloved of our entitlement programs, and uh, people trust in it, and they believe it's going to be there for them. And whenever you start talking about changing that program, it makes the beneficiaries of it uh, and the people that are family members of those beneficiaries very, very nervous. Now, essentially what the Ryan plan would do would take the Medicaid system and, and revert it into a block grant system where you would give the states uh, a block of money and give them more discretion as to how they spend it. This, again, this is sort of a very broad brush ex ex explanation of what they would do. The Medicare system it would take away the sort of guaranteed benefit system and it would instead uh, give seniors a block of money that they could then use to put into private insurers, that you could pick your own plan. Paul Ryan likes to say it's similar to the kind of coverage that members of Congress get, although that point is debatable. Now, one of the reasons why politically this is so risky is you're talking about senior citizens who are perhaps some of the most uh, politically aware and politically active voters in this country. Uh, if you look in the House uh, of the 150 congressional districts that have the most senior population, 99 of them are currently held by Republicans. So by uh, advocating for this plan, and almost all of them have advocated for it, in the House all but four Republicans voted in favor of this plan, it is politically risky. Now, I would say what's interesting about this, and what I do think shows a level of recognition among the public that we do need to do something, is that 
the polling is still pretty divided. The, the public hasn't fully formed their opinion yet. Now, of course, it's still early. We're still figuring out the details of this, and we're still a long way from next year's election. The most recent polling data I've seen from Gallup showed the public almost completely divided evenly between President Obama's deficit reduction plan and Paul Ryan's deficit reduction plan. So I think in the court of public opinion, this is still very much being defined. Uh, right now on Capitol Hill, I would say that Republicans in this debate, they feel good. They feel they have leverage. They feel like part of this is still the repercussions of the 2010 midterms in which we saw a complete rejection of the Democratic Party and the fiscal path that they had taken the nation on. Now, I would say that some Republicans will acknowledge this as well, that that might be an overreading of what that election meant. I don't think a lot of people showed up to the polls in 2010 to vote for the Republican on the ballot. I think a lot of them showed up as a protest to vote against the Democrat on the ballot. So what Republicans are doing by laying out these very bold uh, policy prescriptions, it is pretty courageous. I think when you hear these terms being described to what Paul Ryan's doing as bold and brave, it's because it's hard to put, putting this on the line, there's a lot of risks involved. Now, translating this forward to the debate we're having now over the debt limit, uh, there's a little, this, this debate is probably going to dominate much of Congress and much of the conversation over the summer. Uh, they've moved back the target date for when they expect that they're going to have to vote on it. It might come as late as August, which in, in some respects is a good sign because it sort of cools the temperatures a little bit and gives lawmakers more time to negotiate on this. I would say I am not particularly concerned about whether the debt limit will get raised. Uh, I think at the end of the day, members in both parties really have no interest in calling into question the full faith and credit of the United States government. I think that's politically risky uh, by either any way you calculate it, uh, and the repercussions are far greater, again, than the politics of it. I think the debate really going on is what are they going to get in exchange for their votes. That's really the conversation on Capitol Hill right now. It's not necessarily are we going to raise it, it's how much are we going to get in exchange for these votes. And I think this is where you're going to see um, what they want is they want to try and put some controls on, the, on spending and how we spend our money. And this is going to be difficult. I think one of the things you're, thing you're going to hear more about is a balanced budget amendment, which is something that sort of ebbs and flows in popularity uh, when we talk about fiscal restraint in this country. And I also think that there's going to be an effort to put real uh, enforceable caps on spending uh, over those proposals over a two-year period, five-year period, ten-year period. Uh, and if they aren't met, that they, there would be triggers that would enforce spending cuts, that would sort of bring the axe down whether they liked it or not. This is where the debate is going to be. And this is when it sort of gets into the wonkery of Capitol Hill and budget mechanisms and, and the budget rules and how you override them. But I would also say that there is a tremendous amount of interest uh, to get this done. And I also think in both parties, one of the things that Democrats, I think, did not see coming after the election was how serious Republicans were going to be in this debate. I do think that there's some frustration in the Democratic Party that the entire conversation right now is about deficit reduction and not about job creation, which is something that we haven't really heard much about in recent months. Um, the limitations that Republicans have right now, even if they have sort of the, the winds at their back, is one, there is the Tea Party element, as many of you have heard of, on Capitol Hill. In the freshman class in the House, there's 87 new members. A lot of the times they're sort of broadly brush referred to as the Tea Party Republicans. 
Uh, I would say of this 87, there's probably about two dozen votes that I would consider really a core Tea Party vote. Um, we saw it earlier this year in the vote to avert a government shutdown to fund the government through the rest of the fiscal year. Uh, the members that opposed it because they said it didn't go far enough. This is a group of Republicans that no matter what they come up with are probably going to vote against it because it's never going to go as far as they want it to go. Now what that means is it's probably unlikely that Republicans can pass anything, even in the House, which usually can pass things with majority rule, without Democratic support. So if they're going to need some votes across the aisle to get to where they need to be, they're not going to be able to get their demands met as far as they want. So in, the sense, in one sense, I think that's a positive outcome because I do think it's going to force both parties to come to the table. And I do think there's an honest effort of negotiation going on. Part of the problem I, I think that they have politically is there's a real question of who's leading on this. I think, and I think there's is confusion among the public on this, and I think there's confusion on Capitol Hill about this. Uh, as many of you, I'm sure, have heard, there was a, Obama's debt commission that had come out with recommendations on how to bring this under control. Uh, you have negotiations going on about the debt limit right now and how to what to attach to that vote. You've got a group of senators in, in the Senate called the Gang of Six, which is a group of three Republicans and three Democrats actively trying to come up with a deficit reduction plan. And you had the Obama administration recently announce another commission that will meet for the first time this week, led by Joe Biden, and that is another track of trying to find negotiations for a deficit reduction plan. So in one sense, it's good because this is an active and real conversation going on in Washington. But in order to build coalitions, in order to build support for these things, I think there's a question of who's leading, and I think that the partisanship on Capitol Hill is, is really stark. I think the 111th Congress, the one prior to this, was the most politically divided we've had probably in our nation's history. When you look at the number of strict party line votes that was held and uh, the party loyalty, that there's just very little common ground that is either sought after or encouraged in, in finding these solutions to these problems. Now, it's a little early to talk about how this will play politically, in part because we still just don't know. We don't know what they're going to come up with, and what that, what that plan is will determine a lot of the politics of this. I will say what, what I am watching and what I think Washington is watching, and you will probably hear more about these, this as we get closer to them, is that we have two special elections coming up. One is uh, later this month in May in upstate New York. It was a uh, district held by a congressman named Chris Lee, who became nationally known after he resigned over a Craigslist sex scandal. Um, there's one in every Congress. And so there's a special election going on there now. And this is a Republican-leaning district. This is a district that has been pretty comfortably held by Republicans for some time, although you could argue John McCain won it by about six points in 2008. Now, the Democrat running there is being endorsed by local, local Democratic groups. Uh, is, fundraisers are being held for her, even though the Democratic campaign operation has sort of officially said that they're not really interested in this race. They're downplaying expectations. She was the first candidate of the 2012 cycle to run an ad against her opponent on the Ryan budget, on the Medicare vote, because the Republican in the race said, had she been a member of Congress, she would have supported it. So that is worthy of noting. Now, I'm still skeptical that she would be able to win this race, but if she makes it close, if it's a squeaker, if, if, if she shocks and wins, I think that will make everyone in Washington sit up and pay attention to this race. Similar to the way that um, when Scott Brown won in Massachusetts, you had an idea that something crazy was going on and we better start paying attention. The other one to keep an eye on is in September, there's going to be another House special election in a seat by a, Congress, a Republican congressman named Dean Heller who's about to be appointed to the Senate to fill the seat of John Ensign. 
another member of Congress who resigned in a sex scandal. <laughs> um, and this race is probably going to be a little bit more true of a test of what's going on, because I think already we've had both parties say that this is going to be uh, where they're going to put the money and the message on, the, on these fiscal issues. Nevada is a state that has had been hit uh, particularly hard with unemployment, with foreclosures. It's sort of a good test case. I don't think it's any coincidence that the day that John Ensign announced he was resigning, Barack Obama was in Dean Heller's district uh, at a fundraiser and campaigning. It's a battleground state, and I think this, it's also a state with a significant senior population, and I think that they're going to put a lot of money and a lot of message into this. And whichever way that race goes, I think is going to be seen uh, as a, perhaps a national bellwether as to which way the country is moving next year. Great. John? Thank you. Well, I'm in, the, uh, in one sense in kind of an unenviable position here in the, the third spot because I'm coming after David, who's got more expertise on economic policy than virtually anybody. And I'm coming after Susan, who's got more expertise on the legislative dynamics and, and also the sex scandals of the current <laughs> uh, Congress uh, than virtually anybody. And I don't have expertise in either of those subjects, but I'm left to discuss the politics. Uh, and in that sense, it's kind of an enviable position because anybody can talk about politics and anybody's uh, views on politics are as good as anybody else's. Uh, and so it doesn't really require any expertise. And that's the kind of position, uh, that's where I want to be. No expertise <laughs> required. Uh, uh, I do think, as uh, uh, Jim framed the, uh, the debate at the beginning, uh, this is a, a question that's fundamentally not about accounting or not about economic policy. It is a fundamentally uh, political question. Um, and the, the, uh, as I synthesize the different questions that Jim uh, proposed for this, uh, they, they really come unified around a single question, which is can our political culture in this country uh, behave uh, rationally? Uh, are there the, uh, uh, the, the, the dynamics that are going to push both parties to take uh, responsible action? As I study, uh, economics is all about uh, market incentives. That's what economics uh, economists look at. But as I study politics, I also always try to return to the question about incentives. Uh, and the particular incentives in modern political culture have had a, a, a powerful and I would argue distorting effect uh, in, uh, in recent years. Uh, David's an expert on uh, polarization. It's certainly been my view that uh, polarization is nothing new in American history. We've always had it. In fact, we've had uh, periods of ideological polarization much, much more intense uh, uh, in our history than anything we're seeing right now. Even within our lifetimes or within some of our lifetimes, you know, we've gone through periods where the campuses were exploding, uh, 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 you know, faculty members and university presidents being held hostage in their office. And Jim, that's never probably happened to you, right? Uh, not yet, anyway. Uh, Jim was holding <laughs> That's right. He uh, 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 you know, in the 30s, we had labor riots, of course, and throughout our history, we've had uh, racial tension, uh, 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 the Civil War, people were... Dick Cheney gave the middle finger to Senator Pat Leahy, uh, or excuse me, he used, a, he used, a, used a, a, an obscene expletive on the Senate floor uh, to uh, Pat Leahy, but he didn't take out a cane and, and uh, bash him uh, as happened uh, during the Civil War period. So our ideological polarization uh, is not as severe, and we're going to be discussing these issues in a, in a, uh, in a climate where there's relative to other periods in our history, there's no reason we can't come to, uh, uh, to agreement. 
But what I do think is uh, uh, historically unique about our present circumstances uh, is that there is now a, a kind of an industrial complex in our politics uh, which uh, profits from uh, disagreement, from contentiousness, uh, and from exaggerating uh, ideological differences. Uh, what are the big incentives in politics? There's basically two. One of them is publicity. The other is money. Uh, one of my favorite examples that illustrates this point about the way uh, these incentives have distorted um, uh, our politics and have kind of created a market uh, for, for fractious and irresponsible behavior is uh, uh, Congressman Joe Wilson from South Carolina. Do you guys remember him? Uh, he's the fellow who, uh, in Barack Obama's, uh, one of his uh, addresses to Congress, shouted out, you lie. Now, I edit a newspaper that covers Congress, and prior to that evening, I had never heard of Joe Wilson. He was the epitome of a backbench congressman. And even he, uh, when after making that utterance, seemed for at least like the first uh, half hour or so kind of embarrassed by what he had done. It apparently was a spontaneous gesture. He just got so, uh, so caught up in the moment that he, he uh, yelled and made a jackass of himself on national TV. And he was uh, understandably sheepish about it. Then what happened? Within hours, uh, his fundraising was soaring through the roof. All kinds of people uh, wanted to give money. You know, they liked what he had said. Uh, there's money. Uh, then what happened? That, uh, uh, that Sunday, the Sunday shows all called, we want you on. Fox News said, hey, are you free this Sunday? He said, I am. Uh, <laughs> uh, so he got the, the, this great ride out of it. Uh, uh, you, uh, uh, Jim mentioned this book that I wrote, um, I co-wrote with a, a, a fellow named Mark Halperin called The Way to Win. It was largely about uh, uh, these incentives. Uh, we, have, we feel contempt toward them, so we gave it a contemptuous name, The Freak Show. And, and uh, that was one of the big themes of our book, The Way to Win. I'll make an aside about Mark Halperin. Uh, he's been the co-author of uh, a cumulative uh, million books sold. Uh, and 990,000 of those books uh, were not with me uh, <laughs> as co-author. We did not manage to game the incentives of the publishing industry adequately. We sold 10,000 books. But if you're interested uh, in this, uh, this theme about the distorting effects of incentives, uh, uh, I do think that's a, that's a good book uh, for this. So anyway, I'm going to be my, the way I look at this question of what happens on the, the budget uh, and the, these uh, um, sort of broader spending issues um, uh, is in the context of incentives. Specifically, what are the, uh, the incentives uh, uh, for both parties on this issue? I do think, before you look at the question of will Democrats and Republicans come together and make a deal, it's worth looking at the divisions within the two parties. The Democrats have what is, to, to my eyes, a, a more traditional, classic, ideological division within their party. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, um, th just a lot of Democrats who don't agree. I'd say that probably the majority of Democrats, if they could you know, be given true serum and speak what they really uh, think, don't really think that this is uh, 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 such a pressing issue. Or if it is, it's one that has a very, an obvious uh, solution, which is raise taxes in order to preserve uh, uh, the, the welfare state and expand it where possible. 
you can see uh, David's colleague um, uh, at the New York Times writes about this often. Paul Krugman, he doesn't think that the big question facing uh, the United States and, and our kind of larger national destiny, whether we'll continue to be a strong country, are, are these structural deficits. He would say it's a failure of political, the, the big threat is a failure of, uh, of uh, political courage, and he probably would go further and say it's a failure sort of intellectual rationality that's, uh, what, that's threatening. Uh, the country. That's why these are, are such big problems. But the solutions uh, he sees are, look, look, you raise taxes in order to, to uh, uh, pay for these things, maybe do some modest spending uh, decreases uh, gradually. Uh, uh, but fundamentally, it's a matter of we, we just don't have enough revenue. Probably most Democrats, I don't know if you'd believe, if you'd agree with this, Susan, most Democrats on Capitol Hill would say, yeah, Krugman's basically right. But you've got a significant faction of Democrats who say, no, Krugman is wrong. These are huge, huge issues. Uh, we're not Republicans, but we agree with the Republican diagnosis, which is that these are, 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 are stark, pressing uh, problems that if we're going to be responsible public servants, we need to, uh, we need to address, including with some pretty aggressive uh, medicine that's going to be uh, uh, fundamentally uh, maybe about raising revenue at the uh, at the margins, but fundamentally re, uh, rethinking uh, uh, the modern welfare, uh, the modern welfare state, and scaling it back. That's an ideological divide within the uh, within the Democratic Party. Maybe not a stark ideological divide, but I think a, a distinct one. I don't see Republicans as having such an ideological divide. Maybe in differences of degree. Fundamentally, the stark divide among Republicans, as I see it, is a stylistic one. There are establishment Republicans who uh, believe the responsible thing to do would be to uh, uh, sit down with a, a, a president who, if they were on true serum, they could admit they fundamentally see as a responsible, reasonable person, sit down and cut a deal and uh, get the best deal that they can. But they would agree with David that there's a rational solution to this. The Rubik's Cube has a solution, and you don't have to be a genius uh, to figure it out. Uh, you know, Mitch Daniels would probably be the epitome of, uh, of an establishment Republican who thinks that. Um, I see the majority of the Republican Party right now uh, being driven by a, a uh, not by these establishment Republicans, but by a kind of a media activist uh, complex. Uh, that is, uh, politicians who take their uh, support from the grassroots of the party and get their oxygen, not for, uh, by virtue of their establishment positions in Washington, but by virtue of their uh, access to media platforms. So uh, Rush Limbaugh would be the, a real leader of the party in that sense. Sarah Palin clearly comes out of, uh, um, uh, out of uh, uh, this school, represents the, uh, the, the, the kind of media activist wing. And many of the new Republicans elected to Congress in 2010 come from this side of the party. Uh, rather than the establishment side. It's a stylistic difference, not an ideological one, but it has big implications, I would argue, for the, uh, the, the, their willingness to cut a deal or their willingness to give their leadership the, uh, the, the leash, the license, to go sit in a room and, and cut a deal. Those are the, uh, the, 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 the two divisions that I see within the party that have to get resolved before there's ever going to be the possibility of the, the two parties crossing the aisle and, and, and cutting, the, uh, cutting the deal. 
uh, Jim asked, you know, is it the theater or substance? Uh, um, you know, I really think almost every important political question has elements of both, and they're, they're so intertwined it's impossible uh, to, to separate them. The near term, if you're looking for what's going to happen, um, you know, on these questions. First off, there's, I don't think there's any doubt that the uh, debt limit will be increased uh, after a fair amount of theater, but um, you know, clearly it would, uh, it, it's going to be increased. Uh, Republican, the Republican establishment, anyways, under enormous pressure uh, from uh, its Wall Street uh, wing and from the contributors to the party to not uh, uh, play a game of brinksmanship over the debt. Um, they've been lobbying extensively. Um, you know, the, I think Boehner would, uh, among the sort of the financier class of Republicans, they would see it as a major loss of credibility for Boehner if he's not able to navigate this to a successful and relatively drama-free conclusion. And I think that's at the end of the day, that's probably what's going to happen. The larger question, though, of whether there is kind of a grand bargain that would solve the Rubik's Cube in a way uh, similar to uh, what, what David uh, has, uh, has laid out. It seems to me really clear that in the short term, the incentives are overwhelming in both parties not to do that. Um, Republicans are not eager to see their leadership uh, go out to Andrews Air Force Base, uh, which George H.W. Bush did in, uh, in 1990, uh, where he uh, uh, reneged on the, the No New Taxes pledge and uh, ended up losing a lot of support within his own party. Uh, there just is not a consensus for doing that in, uh, on the Republican side. On the Democratic side, I think it's, uh, it just seems irresistible to President Obama, at least in the short term, uh, to take advantage of the opening that Paul Ryan has afforded him by presenting himself and the Democrats uh, presenting themselves as a party uh, to the country as the defender of uh, traditional social programs, specifically Medicare. Every single Gallup poll since uh, Obama was elected, the, the weakest demographic link in his coalition is elderly voters. They see this as a huge opportunity uh, to correct that. And uh, just as he was the party of the young, the candidate of the young in 2008, they hope that he can be, in some significant measure, the, the candidate of older voters in, in 2012. So I just don't see the short-term incentives uh, that are pushing the two sides toward a grand bargain. If you want to be uh, uh, sort of depending on your point of view, optimistic. In the longer term, I do think it is easier to see that because I do think uh, that there are powerful incentives that would be pushing the party, uh, both parties, toward getting, uh, cutting a deal and getting this issue off the table. The reason for that is if you are a Democrat, you're a believer in progressive government. You believe the government has a, a, a useful role. You're, you believe in affirmative government. Increasingly, because of the problems uh, uh, David described, that threatens uh, the promise of progressive government. If you're, it, it, to, to do nothing is to basically say the Democrats are fundamentally not a progressive party but a conservative party. About, uh, uh, they stand for protecting the status quo uh, as it was uh, um, um, created in the 1930s 
with Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid in the 1960s and uh, uh, protecting that status quo. It's really hard to be a creative party coming up with new solutions to meet new problems if that's uh, uh, what you stand for. And you're going to take huge chunks of the budget just off the table, leaves you next to nothing uh, on the so-called discretionary spending. Uh, and that's where all the cuts are taking place. That is not a progressive vision of government. So I think long term Obama is going to see this as in, in the, the, the liberal party's advantage to try to cut a deal on this and get this, uh, the, this issue off the table. And Republicans similarly um, uh, are going to see an opportunity to stop having to, uh, uh, to basically play the same movie that's been being played over and over, really since for 30 years now, uh, whenever they want to uh, have an argument about the proper role of government, they get bashed uh, in elections uh, by, uh, on, the, on Social Security and on Medicare. Uh, and so this would give them an opportunity to sort of turn the table on that, uh, let's face it, rather stale debate. It's like the movie Groundhog Day, over and over and over again. The debate we're seeing right now has total echoes of the one I covered when I was covering the Clinton administration in the mid-90s. Uh, and that debate had echoes of uh, the, the debate that was playing out between Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan in the uh, 15 years before that in the 1980s. So there are incentives, I think, uh, basically they're driven by substance rather than politics to say, look, this, these, there are some fundamental issues that are resolved between the two parties, and so they need to come together and like, sort of acknowledge that, uh, that resolution in a political sense. That's great. Thank you. Uh, David? Um, so I, I, I always try to take a step back from my own beliefs. Uh, I'll give you an example. That's what Jim says. Gee, you know, why was, the, why, why was the budget being held up over a little thing like Planned Parenthood? Well, if it's such a little thing, why didn't the president give it up? Now, I'm not saying what side I'm on, but the question has a bias to it. That it's important. The Democrats were right on that. So, so you have to take a step back. And on taking a step back, my, my uh, study of the budget over the period from Harry Truman to the president shows that I would say that both parties are uh, equally adept at manufacturing uh, budgets that look good. I, I wouldn't, uh, I disagree with David, I don't think that the uh, Democrats are any better than the, than the Republicans. So I have a different take on this whole problem. And first one is, is this an American problem? And the answer is no, it's not. This is a problem all over, every, every small D democracy has this problem. Greece, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, Japan, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There is no democratic country that has done very much to deal with the long-term deficit problem, which is getting, and the long-term gets shorter and shorter. It used to be when you talked about the long-term, it was three generations, now it's two, now it's one. So no small-D democracy has dealt successfully with the problem of long-term liabilities, debt, and entitlements. They just have not done so. So it doesn't matter whether that's Britain, Italy, France, doesn't matter. How, so what, now there are differences. Uh, the, the French spend less money, uh, have a good health care system, spend less money, it's broke. Uh, th there are all sorts of minute differences, but the fundamental point is none of them have resolved that. Not to say there aren't solutions, but sort of once you recognize that uh, this is not just a problem of the United States, it means that all sorts of solutions that people propose can't possibly be right in the grossest sense of right. It can't be polarization. Every parliamentary system 
the members of one party vote against the members of the other party. In the British House of Commons, Labour votes against the Tories. In the German Parliament, SPD and its coalition votes against, or not in this, in this case, CDU, CSU, they vote against SPD. So polarization, if by that you mean all the members of one party vote against all the members of the other party, that can't be the cause because it happens all over the world and, 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 uh, and, and that's one. Two, uh, in this particular Congress, you've already had more examples of bipartisanship because the Republicans had 87 new members who were Tea Party advocates and the Republicans knew that they couldn't play the game the regular way. Because the regular way, uh, as uh, the speaker before me said, is to get the incentive game. So Nancy Pelosi and Denny Hastert would get a coalition together within their party. That coalition, would, and if sometimes that meant uh, in order to pass health care, you had to uh, give water rights to California congressmen who needed them for their vote. That was great. If you had to give, uh, and, and Denny Hastert, and if you wanted to get eight, uh, eight uh, new, new uh, lanes at O'Hare Airport, he did what he had to do, but then they put, reported everything out on a closed rule. The speaker never lost on those. In this Congress alone, Speaker Boehner has been rolled twice. In the, in the uh, Democratic controlled Congress in which President Obama was in, not in favor of the second engine for the new fighter plane, the Democratic controlled Congress kept it in. In this Congress, because of those, because the 87 Tea Party sorts would not be amenable because their incentives were to uh, refer back home, the Republicans knew that they couldn't have closed rules because what would happen is they, they, they'd lose their own people. So the rules are much more open, and on the vote uh, for the second engine, uh, Boehner lost that vote. There were 102 Republicans voted with 120 Democrats against him, and he was rolled. Uh, I think this Congress on that set of rules, now that's not because the Republicans are a better party or anything, it's just because that's the nature of the coalition they have. They've got a disputatious bunch. They know that they can't cut deals with those 87 people, so they're going to open the rules. And uh, that, 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 that's what comes of it. And, and secondly, uh, in, uh, in the book that Jim referred to, uh, Red and uh, Blue Nation, uh, Hari Han and I uh, looked back at party voting or polarization in the United States Congress in, uh, from 1856 to the present. And uh, by those standards, the present, uh, the last 10 years have been mildly polarized, but by uh, normal US standards, not, not very polarized. Most of the time, we think of polarization out of that period in the uh, post-World War II period where there was a lot of uh, conservative Southern Democrats voting with Northern Republicans, the conservative coalition. There were Rockefeller Republicans that voted with Democrats. And uh, those, uh, that has uh, tailed off. It started to tail off about midway through the Reagan uh, presidency, and, and it's sort of gone. So now we're about back to where the same levels of polarization that we were in the Oh, early, uh, early 20th century. Uh, an another thing that can't be causing this problem is elections every two years are too much money in politics. Uh, and, and the simplest sense, when people give you that simple answer, you've you got to ask for a lot more details as to how it would work. Because the, Itali the, uh, the Irish system, the Spanish system, the Portuguese system, and the Greek system severely limit how much money you can spend in a campaign. And that didn't solve the problem for them. Uh, they don't have two-year elections. 
So uh, there's a whole set of uh, th those sorts of things. Can't be accounting rules. And I assure you that if you look at the accounting rules for how uh, the British uh, deal with capital expenditures, how the French deal with it, and how uh, budgets are put together, the rules differ dramatically, yet the same fundamental fact occurs. They are not able to deal with li long-term liability, entitlement, and debt. Um, and it can't be, uh, it can't simply be that you need a third party in the simple sense because a lot of those countries have three, four, five, seven, ten parties and, and it didn't allow them having multiple parties where everybody can find their own little niche that didn't allow them to solve the problem. So why can't, why can't they make decisions because I do agree with uh, David that there are economic solutions to these problems. Social Security is not particularly hard to fix. Uh, John Chauvin, uh, the C Center uh, at Stanford and George Schultz uh, uh, Democrat and Republican have a little book that's uh, very straightforward and a, a pretty, pretty easy fix. It's the politics that's the hard part. And I think uh, there I agree that politicians have little incentive to compromise. And, and I think if, if I had to give one major reason for it, and the one thing that the United States has that no other country has, democratic country has, is that we have democracy within the parties as well as uh, between the parties. No other country allows a primary system to nominate candidates. My view is what that's done uh, over time, particularly since the 70s when uh, activism became more important, uh, it has driven Democratic candidates further left, Republican candidates further right. It has given the uh, interest groups like uh, uh, teachers unions or uh, single issue groups like uh, abortion groups or Tea Party groups. It has given them immense control because the congresswoman or the congressman knows that if they vote wrong on this, they're going to get a primary opponent and that pulls them right or left. And, and you know, that, that may be wrong, but at least it's a testable hypothesis because no other country, no, no other country has that particular uh, form. The British have experimented with it in three uh, parliamentary districts, but uh, it's not enough to really do anything with. So then, sort of to finish up, what, what is it that the, so what, what do the, and the second part of this thing is, well, what do the people want? Well, it's true that if you ask them general questions, uh, and so we're now in the middle of an experiment on this, if you ask people general questions, they do tend to support the Tea Party. They do want the budget cut, they want deficits reduced, blah, blah, blah. And on, then on the same hand, if you immediately go over and ask the same people, well, what programs do you think we ought to cut? Well, everybody wants to cut foreign aid, which if you cut all foreign aid, it's about you know half a percent. It just doesn't do anything. And what's more distressing is when you tell them it's only a half a percent and go back and ask them again a month later, they say the same thing, they want to cut foreign affairs. <laughs> So that leads people to say the sort of thing they say, well, America's ideologically right of center, but uh, instrumentally it's left of center, whatever that means. Now, I've spent a lifetime studying politics, and, and I've never been able to answer the question, is the American public dumb? Well, I mean, seriously, you can't have, I agree with Dave, you can't have balanced budget. At any point in time, two-thirds of Americans want a balanced budget. Uh, they want increased expenditures and they want lower taxes. Well, you can't have that. But, or is it just, is it just the choices we give them? And, and I'm inclined, in an optimistic mood, to think it's the choice. So what do we mean by that? 
Well, President Reagan, so nobody ever says to people there are hard choices. What does President Reagan say? Reagan says, well, let's cut taxes. We'll have more money. We'll be better off. Oh, that's hard. You mean you're going to give me more money and I'll be better off? President Obama says adding 30, 40 million people won't cost anything in health care. That's wrong. Bush says Medicare prescription drugs. That won't cost anything. It'll save us money. It won't. Carter, remember the one serious speech a president made in my lifetime was Jimmy Carter came on and gave that famous Malay speech. It lasted about four days. He found out the public didn't like that, so he came back and said, well, you know, don't worry. There is an energy crisis, but if you walk to the grocery store once a week, it'll all be all right. I think politicians have not forced the American people to think about the nature of those trade-offs, and therefore they haven't done so. And so, uh, for my view, it's kind of a leadership failure. You, you have to figure out a way to both get some cuts and, uh, and what you're going to do in regard to taxes and understand there's a trade-off. There's, there's a trade-off between short-term deficits, which are, I agree, less problematic than the long-term deficit, though in the long run, uh, the deficits all become short-term deficits uh, because over time you run into deeper problems. So uh, I look forward to seeing what the Gang of Six comes up with. Uh, I particularly like uh, Tom Coburn, uh, whose statement was, you know, I'm a fiscal, so the, ta the, the tax people were all over him because he, he said in a statement, he said, well, of course I'm going to have to, that we're going to have to raise some taxes. I can't have it all my way. And uh, all of a sudden, all the uh, anti-tax groups are uh, up in arms against him, and so far he's stuck to it. Uh, okay, so what, what I mean, so what, what you really need is political leadership, and I can only think of one really pretty good example of that, and that is when the abolitionist movement in the United States started uh, in 1831, it was, given the country, the culture and the times, it was perfectly clear that no, that, that abolitionism would not be a majority winning issue. You could not win a majority of Congress. You couldn't change government. You couldn't change policy running on abolitionism. And over time, uh, leaders uh, uh, of the De Northern Democrats and Northern Whigs converted abolitionism essentially into free man, free soil, free labor. And that was an issue, and they led on that issue, and that's an issue that allowed the Republicans to take over the uh, country in the 1854 election. And, uh, and form the Republican Party in a majority. So what we need today, it seems to me, is uh, leaders who talk honestly about these, uh, the, these trade, the necessary trade-offs. And I think given the nature of the incentives that politicians have, particularly in my view, the threat of um, primary opponents uh, makes it difficult uh, for politicians to compromise on that issue. I think it was easier probably to compromise in the 1950s when that pressure wasn't there. That, thank you. Thank you. Well, so we'll blame some of it on the progressives. Uh, but tell me um, uh, who let it, gave us the primary system. Uh, but let me say, uh, before we open it up to questions from the floor, why don't we see if anybody in the panel wants to respond to anything that anybody else has said, uh, and if not, we'll have questions from the floor. Any, everybody agree with everything? It's all <laughs> incompatible. Um, I just want to, I'll just make one point just to put some 
because I always find this out, and I've actually used this a lot in stories I've written, just because when we talk about politicians and the, and and in, especially in this fiscal sense, I mean, regardless of party, politicians generally get elected because they promise to give you things. You know, whether it's a tax cut or a new road or whatever it is, I mean, they don't normally get elected saying, you know, I'm going to raise your premiums and your roads won't get paved and the kids, your kids' art program is going to get canceled. So come out and show up for me in November, and we'll get this, we'll get this deficit under control. I mean, it's a really tough argument. Now, but in the context of why it's difficult, is what do the people want? And 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 as you said, people don't. There's no agreement on what you'll actually agree to. And Pew did, uh, when they were talking about deficits, what people would agree to. And the only two things that got a majority of support was to freeze the salaries of federal workers and to raise the Social Security cap. There's the only two things that 50 plus one or higher said that they would support. You can't, you can't balance the budget that way. I mean, it's just not going to work. So when they talk about, um, they, Pew called them the big no-nos, 70% or more of people oppose, including uh, taxing employer-provided health benefits, raising the gas tax, or reducing federal funding for states and roads. It's more than 70%, which is a significant amount of people. Uh, the moderate no-nos oppose raising the retirement age for Social Security, eliminating mortgage interest deductions, uh, and the public's evenly divided over whether you should get uh, fewer Social Security and Medicare benefits. So the reason why I think it's so difficult is no matter every, anything that they would have to come up with that would actually s severely impact the deficit and, and put the economic path on the right course is probably going to cause all of you in some way some kind of pain. They're going to have to take something away from you. And as a politician, that's just fundamentally not something they want to do. I do want to add one, one, one point to that. The, um, the problem with these one-time samples, the, the Pew uh, sample among them, is they're not, so, so the real question is, if people, so just a quick thing, if you give them real information, if you give them real information, can they actually see the nature of the trade-off? That's a really hard experiment to uh, do. So in, in the YouGov polymetrics poll, which The Economist does, which is an internet poll, uh, we started to do that by having some pretty interesting little graphics. So we, uh, we know what their income is because they're in, in the pool. And so when it comes up, their income pops up and it shows what, where they are in the American public. And what that would mean in terms of taxes immediately pops up. You can look at that. And so we're trying to work with a set of questions to find out what, what exactly, and I, I don't know that uh, what Susan said is wrong. Uh, I, what I don't know is if you give them real information over time, uh, will they be able to make compromises? And we're in the middle of a project uh, trying to figure that out. But it's not easy. Yeah, let me just add, David, that as you know, I do something called deliberative polling, yeah. where we take scientific samples and we actually bring them together for a whole weekend of discussions where we engage them in the trade-offs and the difficult choices and allow them lots of opportunities over a weekend to get the questions answered by competing experts from different points of view and carefully balanced briefing materials vetted uh, elaborately to ensure that the information is good. And the public is all over the world, including in the United States, able to make hard choices. And at the end of the day, in my personal view, they look very smart. It's just normally they don't have much reason to pay attention. They don't process the information, whatever they, and they, uh, they uh, seek out 
uh, confirming or congenial information and they don't really expose themselves to the other side, but if they actually engage seriously in the issues, um, they're quite capable of making difficult choices. But our, you say, David, it's a question of leadership, the political, our, our members of Congress and uh, uh, elected officials, they have a different incentive than to merely focus on the merits. Their incentive is to get reelected. And because, and their incentive is to keep their nomination, which is why your point about the, the, the primaries is uh, so important, and I think very well taken, because they're looking at the possibility of intense groups knocking them off. Uh, one puzzle to me uh, that the Congress watchers might answer is, uh, it's very interesting this Ryan budget is really on the Medicare issue uh, beyond the normal practices in the sense that it provides a target that could be used in very dangerous sound bites in the next election, a sword that could be used uh, against those who voted for it. And my friend Bill Galston, uh, who, who looked at this, uh, was telling me the other day that every single Republican who was elected in a district that Obama carried previously voted for the Ryan budget. Not a single one took a pass. Now, isn't that interesting politically? The, the so-called electoral connection, uh, David Mayhew made famous years ago, uh, as to, to explain almost all the motivations of members of Congress, uh, didn't work here. So do they have a different political calculation about what's in their interest? Why, why, Are they true why, believers? Or? Why do you say that? The, the Ryan plan on the, uh, whether you like it or not, the Ryan plan uh, exempts everybody 55 and older. They, they get to keep Social Security. So when you go home to the district, they say you're taking Social Security. That's not true. Mm -hmm. That's a phase out. So yeah. I, I don't see that. So, so, so your view is that's enough protection politically? Well, I mean, that's what they think. It, it could be. I, I, I don't know. I'm just asking. I want to ask David about one thing, which is your statement that Republican nominees have moved to the right and Democrats to the left over the last generation. I don't see that with Democratic nominees. Um, I mean, Truman was in favor of... Uh, I was, sorry, I was, speaking, I was speaking of congressional candidates. Of congressional candidates. That doesn't surprise me nearly as much. Yeah. And, and, and it wasn't... No, what, Democratic, de Democrats uh, have been smarter than Republicans on that by having Super Tuesday and, and those sorts of things. They have had uh, candidates that were uh, able to be centrist. Yeah. Smaller. yeah, you're talking on the presidential side. Yeah, yeah, no, I yeah. agree with them on the yeah. presidential I don't but, disagree on but the isn't, side. But isn't one of the points, your points, David, that or in the collection that the, the middle ground, there used to be an overlap between conservative Democrats and um, mm -hmm. moderate Republicans, and the middle ground sort of disappeared. But was there an overlap, or was it just that we uh, had Democrats yes. who were really to the right of Republicans? I mean, yes, that's exactly right. They were right, yeah. but, I mean, but remember, what they voted on was, it was a, the, the reason that you could have all that overlap was because issues of race, right. gender, uh, all those things were not present. But does that mean, that to me may not mean that there's more polarization today, it just may mean that the parties are more honest reflections of political yeah. philosophy. Right, I don't, I don't. Yeah. 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 Okay, maybe we should, um, since there, uh, those of you who want to ask a question, come up to either side, we'll alternate each side, and um, uh, if you want to direct your question to a particular person, say so, otherwise we will, um, uh, leave it open to the floor. Do you want to go first? 
Thank you. Yes. Um, speak louder, please. Can you hear me? Is this thing on? Maybe there's a button I need to push. Hello? Yeah, we got you. Um, so I first want to say that I wish the polling was done by medium uh, budgets, where uh, I remember there used to be a budget simulator at Berkeley back in the 90s where uh, the people taking this poll would have to budget, uh, balance their budget, and then the result would just be the median of all the entries. And that, that would be a lot better. We have that. That's in there. To, to do that. Um, but uh, I have two questions. Um, so long-term repeated polls say that 65% of U.S. voters uh, support single-payer Canadian style. It saves 40% uh, approximately, according to the CBO. It really improves diseases, lifespans, infant mortality, but only 3% of legislators uh, have spoken in favor of it, even though Obama spoke in favor of it in 2003. And for more steeply progressive income tax, uh, those are similar. About 60% of people want to raise taxes on the rich, uh, more depending on how the question is phrased. In the 1950s, the top marginal tax rate was 88%, much larger than Sweden's top bracket rate is today. And back then, the economy grew so fast that World War II debt, which was much larger than our national debt now as a proportion of GDP, uh, was almost eliminated. Um, so the Supreme Court's been strengthening corporations at the expense of individuals by allowing unlimited anonymous campaign donations, and a few weeks ago by limited, uh, limiting class action lawsuits. I'm not sure that's going to go over too well. Uh, right. but, but please, uh, ask okay. a question. So okay. th there's two questions. No, if the well, House <laughs> refuses to raise the debt ceiling or defund substantial proportions of the budget, what options are open to the Senate and administration to restore funding within the framework of the OECD's multilateral tax haven treaty? And, and secondly, the Netherlands have reduced their unemployment rate by... Wait, wait, wait. let's get one question. Okay. okay. Let me actually answer the, the single-payer health care thing. Okay, uh, please which I think has an implicit question. I don't think Americans are in favor of single-payer health care. I believe that when you ask them about it in a simple polling way, you can get a result that suggests that most Americans are in favor of single-payer health care. I also believe that single-payer health care may be a more efficient system than the one we have. We have this single-payer health care experiment in this country called Medicare. People seem to like it a lot. So I'm very open to the idea that, that, that single-payer health care can be more efficient. But these polls don't work in the real political atmosphere. They don't work in the atmosphere in which the American Medical Association comes out against single-payer health care. They don't work in the atmosphere in which you tell people, if we move to single-payer health care, you lose your health insurance. And I think given the political traditions in this country and given the amount of disruption it would cause, I don't think single-payer health care is something that would pass if only Congress would seriously consider it. Um, other comments? Anybody else want to? So, so does the uh, administration have any um, ability to work with the Senate if the House starts defunding things or refuses to raise a limit? To, to go through the multilateral tax haven treaty that's uh, coming through the OECD and, and uh, impose a more steeply progressive income tax that way? No. I don't know. Does anybody no, know? No, they don't that? have the votes. There are uh, quite a few senators, Democratic senators, up from states that uh, yeah, are not too liberal. The there'd have to be 15 yeah. horse yeah. trading yeah. Republicans, which just seems like too many. And they wouldn't get all the Democrats. Right. Right. Oh, okay. The other questioners go. Okay, ahead. thank you. Over here. Okay. Um, while I'm an economist by profession, I'm going to speak from the perspective just of the individual on the street. <clears throat> it seems to me <clears throat> that from the conservative side of the, last, the political spectrum, it feels, if you're on the street, very punitive. Um, everything from uh, 
uh, switch, um, essentially totally changing Medicare. We all know from the 60s that block grants push programs down to the states and so on, and it never was enough money. So the Medicaid, Medicare reminds me very much of that. Um, I don't know why the, I'm asking, these are questions, why the FICA uh, payroll tax, why it's not considered to be raised because it's quite low. Um, and um, why is the, um, why isn't there more discussion of the potential expiration or non-expiration of the income tax for the high-income people? And when you look at the governors and some of the things the Republican governors are doing, sort of anti-union, um, anti-Planned Parenthood in one of the states, I mean, it feels to me, and I want to know your feelings, it feels on the street almost like class warfare. And so I'm interested in your perspective on these things. Uh, I'll take a stab just to talk a little bit about the tax issue. Um, I do think, and other panelists have alluded to this, uh, when it comes to taxes, there is few issues that has sparked greater unity in the Republican Party than opposition to tax increases. And part of that is seen, I think, by a very strong, compelling, and well-funded group of special interest groups that really hold them, their feet to the fire to hold the line on this issue. Uh, just as a current example of where this is happening, I do think in the Gang of Six, uh, which is this group of senators actively talking about ways to reduce the deficit, Tom Coburn, a Republican from Oklahoma, is one of them and a leader on this issue. He has said publicly that they, they want to support the elimination of tax expenditures, also known as tax earmarks. Uh, this is the money, tax credits that we give to oil companies, to various uh, ethanol, various interests all over the country, uh, the benefit from these. And, and there's this group of Republicans that say, well, we should, this is one way we can get at the tax, the revenue side of it. If we let these uh, expire, and a lot of conservative economic thought is that they're just corporate welfare anyway, that you're unfairly controlling a market, so from an economic, conservatively economic worldview, they're wrong. But already, these out, uh, several of the outside tax groups, including Americans for Tax Reform, which is a group headed up by Grover Norquist, uh, who famously started the anti-tax pledge during the Reagan era that, that almost every member of Con every, almost every Republican member of Congress has signed. I think all but seven members of the House and all but all but nine in the House and all but signed, seven in the Senate have signed this pledge that says they will oppose any and all tax increases. And Grover Norquist has said, tax expenditures, if you let them expire, are tax increases, unless they're coupled with rates cuts across the board. So he has now laid down a line that says, if any Republicans support this, I'm going to accuse you of being a tax hiker, and I'm going to run ads against you, and we're going to primary you, and we're going to campaign against you, even though there is this conservative economic argument that it is the right thing to do, and even though it does really fit into the argument of deficit reduction. So I think when it does come to, particularly when it comes to question of taxes, the political influence and the outside influences cannot be underestimated, particularly on the Republican side of the aisle. Right. Any other comments on this? Well, yeah, I don't think it's just Republican governors. The Massachusetts, a uh, pretty democratic state, uh, just recently uh, eliminated uh, certain bargaining rights for uh, labor unions. And uh, New York, under Cuomo, has uh, put far by. I think governors are uh, faced with difficult problems. They're not like the federal government. They can't print money. They can't, they can't uh, solve problems in a lot of ways. So governors are kind of faced with the immediacy of the problem. 
And it's true that more Republican governors have taken that position, but there are some Democratic governors who've uh, done the same thing. Yeah. Next question. Um, so I have a question, I guess, kind of directed at Mr. Leonhardt, but anyone else can answer too, about the Ryan budget. So in the part when you were talking about how you think it's honest, but you think parts of it maybe aren't. So I'm basically going to talk about something that sounds strange to me and ask whether you think I'm misunderstanding it. So if, even if we assume that the Medicare, he's, he somehow gets the vouchers to grow at the rate of inflation, um, and then there's, there's this other 12%. And so what we heard in the beginning is that he's basically proposed for this 12% discretionary spending, defense, and everything else to go down to 3%, but not really said how. And so is it right to understand that as sort of like Paul Ryan's basically suggesting cut a fourth of defense spending, because that's like roughly 4% now, and zero out the rest of the federal government and get rid of Department of Energy, Department of Health and Human Services, totally everything. And so, and so like roughly half the federal budget, he's just sort of magically cut into a quarter without saying how. And that seems sort of pretty unrealistic. And if that doesn't work out, say that, say that 9% of GDP that he cut it by, only he only gets three quarters of it or half of it to work, then he still has these like 5% deficits annually or something like that. And so is that like an accurate understanding of sort of what's going on or is there more to it? That, David may want to jump in after this. He, that I may not have sufficiently detailed knowledge of it to be able to answer every part of what you're saying. But the two things that occur to me are on the details, one, over time as GDP grows, I think Ryan would say there's no reason why the military and social programs necessarily need to grow with GDP, right? So it's not necessarily zeroing them out to assume that they grow at a rate slower than inflation. Now, I do think his assumptions are unrealistic, okay? And, and I think those are, those, I think you're highlighting good examples of how they are unrealistic. But if we step back from the accounting of it for a minute and just focus on the fact that he has said that my plan will not raise taxes and will el eliminate Medicare as it currently exists. I consider that to be a more honest approach to budgeting, even if when you sort of scrub the budget, it's got a lot of little uh, questionable, at least, aspects to it. I, I think that is a more honest approach to budgeting than many other people David, have taken. David, can I get you to defend that? Because and you sounds like both the questioner and you know the Ryan plan so much uh, better than I do. But if it was, it does seem disingenuous because, like he does all those things, takes the uh, the, the sort of front on right. uh, reappraisal of Medicare, but it still like leaves huge deficits. Yes. So it, it it does sort of raise the question that his ideological goal of refashioning or, or, or uh, you know, largely sort of eliminating Medicare as we know it is actually much more important uh, to him than the ostensible goal of, uh, of zeroing out deficits. I think that's right. And I think it also shows you. So that doesn't seem that candid to me if you're actually trying to use, make an ide I'm wage an ideological uh, campaign you know, under the guise of, uh, uh, of concern about deficits. I'm judging candidness on a curve here. Okay. And, and um, I don't, David said before that he thinks since Truman the parties have been equally irresponsible on the budget or equally responsible. I don't have a view about that. I actually could believe that from Truman to Carter the Republicans were more responsible. Eisenhower refused to cut taxes unless it was paired with a spending cut. Um, 
But I think clearly since Clinton, the Republicans have been less responsible. I mean, you know, Bush passed a Medicare prescription drug program and didn't attempt to pay for it. Obama passed this big expansion of health insurance coverage and attempted to pay for it. So when Obama said it's not going to cost anything, he's saying on net it's not going to cost anything. And oh, by the way, the CBO agrees in the long term. And so, and so when you compare it to that, I think what Ryan is doing is taking a step forward in terms of candidness from the Republican Party on budget issues. I still think that when one of the things that his budget shows is that if you refuse to increase taxes, um, you have to do some really radical things to the United States government in order to balance the budget, just as although we don't have a political party currently advocating this, I think, as you suggested, John, there are some Democrats in Congress who, left to their own devices, would advocate this. Just as if you refuse to cut spending, you have to impose truly radical tax increases on the American public in order to balance the budget. And I actually don't think Ryan even keeps taxes equal. I think he actually cuts them, because what he does is he promises highly specific tax cuts um, and he then sort of says, oh, by the way, we'll get rid of all these tax expenditures, which is great. I'm glad he's saying that. He doesn't name which tax expenditures he's getting rid of. The three biggest tax expenditures are, number one, by far the tax exclusion for employer health care. Susan mentioned how popular that is. Number two, the mortgage deduction. That's not unpopular. And number three, the incentives to save for 401k. So it's really easy to wave your hands and say we're going to get rid of tax expenditures. It's a lot harder to actually tell people. Um, we're taking away your, your tax exclusion for health care and your mortgage deduction. And what you should do is look at the, the long-term problems, uh, long-term assumptions. Uh, and so if you assume that certain programs are going to grow at a smaller rate, 1%, and you assume the economy is going to grow at 4.3%, uh, then over time uh, you solve the problem. And the question, so the question is how realistic is the 4.3 and the 1%? Uh, but I do know that parties cook them. I do know that I don't believe for a minute the Obama budget uh, growth uh, growth was wrong in the previous year. It's probably wrong now. Uh, CBO and uh, OMB uh, over time have gotten more inaccurate on that. We'll just go back and look at what the original estimates for Medicare and Medicaid would cost and see where they are now. I agree the Obama budget is too optimistic. About they're budget. not anywhere near what they said they'd be. Over here. I have two layman's questions. What is the purpose of Tea Party? What are they trying to achieve other than just screaming me? And then the second question is that who, who, who are the major funding source for the Tea Party? I'm sorry, what was the second Who are the major funding funders. sources for the Tea Party? One of, some of our political people want to comment on that? Well, if you were in Alabama. Yeah, they might ask, what are those people in Palo Alto complaining about? Uh, <laughs> so I, you know, the Tea, tea Party seems perfectly, it, it varies by region, but I, I don't see, I don't see why it's, I, I think they don't think they're just screaming. Um, I've, I'll start with the second question first. I do, I don't think there's any question that there's an element of funding that has gone into some of the, what we would call maybe astroturf uh, activism and through various Republican channels. Although I would say, and I've covered the Tea Party movement pretty extensively, and I, everything that I've seen and experienced and the people I've talked to have suggested to me that this was much more of an organic thing, that this was not 
well, you can't dispute that there was money that went into this to sort of, but it really did spark with an organic wave of people that I think were just really angry about what was happening in this country. I do think it also touched on a little bit, a previous questioner uh, had brought up the idea of class war in this country, or this idea that your country, you're losing your country. Um, I would argue that it probably, it, I do think it started in 2008, even though it got more and more attention as we got into the healthcare debate. Um, but I do think it was a natural movement, and I do think that it's sort of becoming a little bit more part and parcel of the establishment. I do think in this 87 Republican freshman class, which I do think is broadly referred to as the Tea Party class, although many, if not the majority, of these Republicans are more traditional Republican candidates in that sense. Um, I think that what they're so angry about is exactly what we're talking about. I think there's an idea that people have worked really hard their entire lives, that they've paid their taxes, that they've done their dues, and somehow this is all just falling apart. And I do think the one polling statistic we've all heard a lot, I'm sure you've heard it as well, is that people are um, less, Americans are less and less inclined to believe that the country they're leaving their children is going to be better than the one they've lived in. And that, I think, that, that, that statistic at the heart of it, I think, is the Tea Party movement. Yeah. But the, politically, how did, even polls now show that unemployment mm -hmm. jobs are a more serious concern than the deficit. But how did the conversation inside the Beltway become a conversation primarily about the deficit? It became so because of the Tea Party. How did all the anger and angst about a very difficult economic situation, a very large number of people, uh, with job insecurity or with actual long-term unemployment and all that anger and frustration somehow got directed to this prescription about the deficit rather than to unemployment. You cut the deficit by cutting the deficit. Uh, and so you can do that in Congress. Yes. Although there are huge numbers of people who say unemployment is their main concern, right. there is very little agreement about what policies to put in place that would actually reduce it. Right. And in fact, the kinds of policies that I think would help, which would be tax cuts and spending increases during a downturn, sort of neo-Keynesian economics are deeply unpopular. And they're not just unpopular in this country. They tend to be unpopular at the tail end of a crisis, right? It's like you've had this terrible illness, and then you take some medicine, and you're a little bit better. Well, you don't necessarily feel that great about the medicine you took, because you feel, still feel really bad. And so while people do say unemployment is their big thing, it's not obvious if you're a politician what you then go do about that. Do you support another stimulus bill? You probably don't. So what do you do? I don't think it's accurate to suggest that the Tea Party made this the deficit argument. I mean, I think the people that, the, I think this has been an argument for a long time, it, it maybe it heightened attention on it, but the deficit hawks on Capitol Hill, the names we keep referring to, the Paul Ryans, the Tom Coburns, the Jim DeMints, they've been beating this drum for a very long time. I do think you do raise an interesting point, and this is where I do think you see a little bit of divide between Democrats in Congress and the White House, and Democrats I've talked to on Capitol Hill, they are a little frustrated that this entire conversation is now in the context of re deficit reduction, which there's even an argument that maybe this is, shouldn't be the top economic priority of the country, that maybe job creation and lowering the unemployment rate, which in the beginning of this Congress, was what Democrats are trying to talk about. Right. It was what Barack Obama was trying to talk about. And I think that there's frustration from the congressional level towards the White House because I think they believe Obama sort of ceded the argument to Republicans earlier this year in this debate over the shutdown. 
that it, in the context of those negotiations, the conversation became almost entirely about deficit reduction, and it has stayed that way since. John, do you buy the critique that Obama is, is bad at negotiating with himself? That he basically <laughs> gives up too much initially when he's negotiating with the other side in, in the desire to seem this reasonable man, and he stakes out the center and then gets pulled further to the right? Um, no, I don't believe that. I believe that he represents uh, his interest as president uh, rather than uh, representing the uh, interests of the Democratic Party broadly as defined by members of Congress. And so uh, he, uh, uh, they see him as caving and he sees himself as cutting uh, deals that are in uh, his interest. And uh, I think he uh, uh, learned, uh, uh, I think it's an accurate lesson uh, from Clinton that the, uh, you know, when it comes to members of your own party, they're either at your heel or they're at your throat. And uh, the difference is uh, his own political health, his own political standing. Uh, when he's popular and his approval ratings are high, uh, he doesn't have a problem with his uh, left uh, flank. When his approval ratings are low and he's seen as weakened, he's got an, uh, a problem with his left flank, his right flank and center flank. Uh, so I, I, don't, uh, uh, I, I don't accept that. Here? Yeah, I, I think people would be um, happier with the proposed solutions if they felt that the pain was spread evenly across, you know, all of us. And I think that's one of the problems with the Ryan plan is that it's perceived to strike at more vulnerable people. The Deficit Reduction Commission proposals seem to me to be evenly, evenly based, I guess you could say. I'm wondering if you think that those are completely dead. Um, I would only just address uh, the first part of your question. I think you're exactly right, and I think you just framed the argument that Democrats are trying to make, almost in those exact words. Uh, in the response to the House Republican budget, the de what Democrats said, uh, uh, Chris Van Hollen, who was a Democrat from Maryland, who's the counterpart to Paul Ryan in Congress, and he said, holding up the Ryan budget, and he said, look, if you're a millionaire, there's nothing in this budget that's going to affect your life. And that's it's a true statement. I mean, if you're the wealthiest, most, uh, if you live the best of the life in this country, there's nothing the Ryan budget takes away from you. And that, I think, is a really compelling political argument. Now, can they sell it? Can they, can they connect? Can do, will that connect with the voters? Will that compel them? I don't know. But that is the exact argument they're trying to make. As for the deficit, you can probably speak no, better than the recommendations. I was going to say my new role as Paul Ryan's spokesman. Uh, <laughs> I, will, I, will, uh, I think Ryan would argue that the, um, the reduction in the tax, he hasn't argued this, but if he were being honest, he would argue that the reduction in the tax expenditures will actually hit the millionaires. There's no way to, to take as much out from tax expenditures as he would take out without hitting millionaires. On the other hand, he's cutting their taxes so much right. that he may be giving it all back. Including by continuing another round of the Bush-era tax cuts. Right. Yeah. I don't think that you asked about the Bulls-Simpson. I don't think that's dead just because we haven't solved this problem yet, and I think it's sort of going to frame the discussion for a long time. And it's 2575, right? What's that, How, David? It's 25. The Simpson thing was 2575. 25% cuts 70. 75% uh, cuts 25% tax raises. Right. Uh, over here, please. Um, earlier tonight you spoke about publicity as an incentive for actors in the political arena and I'm wondering if you could talk about how the media itself um, in terms of providing publicity or not providing publicity 
is affecting the conversation about the de deficit and what is possible for both leaders and what the public can know about the issues? Sure. Um, I think that it, uh, the example I used uh, was uh, Joe Wilson. Um, <laughs> and the, the, uh, I think the media uh, is a, a part, uh, both right and left, of giving, uh, of taking uh, actors that in a previous generation would have been uh, kind of on the fringes uh, of debate and giving them a centrality that they didn't have before. The great trend in media over the past generation has been a breakdown of uh, sort of the, the, the establishment mass media. Um, uh, news organizations um, and uh, the proliferation of, uh, of uh, niche publications. Uh, I mean, even up here we have examples of that. Uh, um, uh, you know, David represents uh, you know, the, the, the most prestigious and, and, and fortunately most robust of the establishment news organizations. Susan and I represent a, a, a new generation of uh, news, orga news organizations that are rising up uh, in response to the, the challenges of the old order uh, by trying to stake a claim into to particular niches that uh, were organized around editorially. Now, in both our cases, the, our editorial mission is not ideological, but in many, many cases, the new media, uh, uh, cable, talk radio, a lot of the web, uh, the websites are ideologically oriented, and so um, they tend to reinforce that. You know, people saying flamboyant things for publicity or for the financial incentives that you can get in response to that. Um, the, the news organizations are, are their vehicle for doing that. You know, Fox News is obviously uh, the most vivid example, um, but MSNBC, you know, envious of, of Fox's uh, uh, rating success and its financial success, basically trying to replicate the model on the left. Although it seems oddly not, not to be executing it well. Right? Wouldn't you keep Keith Olbermann if you really wanted to do that well? I think there were a lot of specific decisions about Olbermann that just made him more He's trouble than he was guy. worth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it is working for them. They make a lot of money. Yeah. No, uh, that's true. I guess my question is just that if the media itself is more polarized, how can we ever expect the public to get more honest information so that they can change what they're demanding of politicians and actually make the cuts that we might need to make to, say, close the deficit? That's a profound and insoluble question. Thank you very much. Do anybody want to take a crack at it? I mean, I would just say from a, and I would say as a reporter, even in the media, I feel the same frustration you feel. You know, I mean, because I'm not an expert on all of these issues, and if I want to know more exactly about how the Medicare system works and things, I, I feel that I have that struggle on my own. The best advice that I've always given, and I incorporate this just in my own life, and this is just personally anecdotal, I think the key is to consume as much news as you can. You know, I mean, it's not necessarily here are the three things you should read, but the answer should be there's nothing you shouldn't read. You know, I, I think you have to be sort of equal opportunity. I do think in, in, a, in a world where whether we like it or not, the media is just simply more polarized, you need to be a little bit more discerning and also a little bit more open to read perhaps things that don't necessarily fit into your own ideological worldview as well. I think part of the problem with this is that a lot of people seek media that is self-reinforcing. You know, you don't like to read things that challenge the way you think. And I would, I, I would do this and I encourage other people to do this, is to seek out and read and discover things that challenge your notions and what you think. One, one good sign is there are fewer and fewer people watching. 
if you look at uh, O'Reilly, which is uh, very popular and uh, uh, demonized by the left, lionized by the right, uh, he's got 2.3 million viewers. Uh, it just that's not very that's not very many people, uh, and and that's that's like the number one show. So, uh, what happens is people sort of sort themselves out, and I think it's with Susan, they watch what they want to watch, mm -hmm. and they don't watch the other side, and and the, and the and the room in the middle, for the uh, sort of more moderate commentators is uh, is going away. Uh, yes, and without that room in the middle you can't have as much of a real dialogue and the people who have... You know, Jim, the interesting thing is the country uh, operated wasn't really until the end of the 20th century that we had, quote, an objective media. Mm -hmm. We, we, yes, we lasted a very long time. Yeah, yeah, but, Michael you know, Schutzen so, wrote an interesting book about so, that. So, you yeah. know, I, I, just, I don't think there are any easy answers to any of this. But I can tell you, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, neither Lincoln nor Douglas had to worry about what the papers would say about the debate. Well, they that's true, the but they had audiences. Yeah, but they had audiences willing, who, who were listening beyond a soundbite, who were listening for hours. But that's actually kind of false. They, were, they went to drink a lot. Uh, oh. the, <laughs> and, and they party. were listening and drinking for hours. Yeah. So, but, but I mean, the point is that, you know, if I get up in the morning, I, I know what the, I, I, when an event occurs, I pretty much know what the New York Times is going to say, and I know what the Wall Street Journal is going to say. It's spoiler point. So if I feel like right wing in the morning, I'll read the, uh, subscribe to both, read both, and go off to work. Okay, like one, last, one last question. Yes, Of the United States economically, will we ever recover and become like we, strong like we were in the 50s, or is this from the rise starting to be the fall of the United States? And should we do lightning round? <laughs> or take them one at a time? How do you want to do it? Oh, oh, we have another. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, so let, let's do this too. By lightning round, you mean we take the questions and then, yes. And, and then any concluding statements you want to make too. Yes, would you? I'm sorry, I didn't see you over here. Yeah, no worries. I just had a question for um, Mr. Leonard talked about short and long term, and Paul Rand's obviously trying to look for a long term solution. Do you think the Congress is going to get to the long term solution this fiscal year? Are they going to put it off? Like, is it going to be now? That's an easy question. No, no way. Uh, I forget if John or David addressed that more. Exactly the right answer. Yeah. Uh, they don't really have the incentives to do it. And quite frankly, that's fine. We don't have to solve the fiscal problems this year. Right. Um, uh, and so I'll start with this one, Please. which is um, I think we're much stronger than we were in the 1950s. Uh, we're much richer than we were in the 1950s. Um, there's much less religious discrimination. There's much less sexism. There's much less racial discrimination. Um, there's much less discrimination based on sexual orientation, needless to say. For the vast majority of people in this country, life is far better today than it was in the 1950s. Um, uh, there are certain ways in which our position is stronger relative to the rest of the world. Militarily, it's stronger than it was in the 1950s. In other ways, um, it's arguably more challenged. We didn't have China and India than we did in the 1950s. I, I'm, I just went, I took my first trip to China. If you go to China, and you haven't been there before, I think one of the things that you're struck by is how many problems China has, <laughs> particularly if you consume media about China in this country, in which this, this recent poll, uh, more Americans said China was the world's leading economic power than the United States, which is a remarkable thing to see. So I think we have a lot of serious problems. I don't think it's inevitable that we'll solve them. I don't think it's inevitable that we re remain the number one. But I don't think there's any country that would trade places with us right now. 
and I think um, we certainly can solve all of our problems. I, I, Dr. Christian, I have a very quick question. And it's only if it's very quick. It's pertinent to the one you were asking about the unemployment rate. In the Netherlands, they've addressed their unemployment by division of labor. They've gone to a 28-hour average work week, up from 26 hours in 2007, apparently. Is there any uh, political lever in Washington to reduce the uh, length of the work week? I can answer that if you moved Washington to Paris. <laughs> Ooh, that's not going to happen. So, uh, anybody have uh, concluding observations, reflections? We seem to have uh, circumnavigated a series of nearly insoluble uh, problems, maybe intellectually solvable if there were political will, but the clash between the accounts of what there's political will for and the things that need to be, need doing, uh, seems to be very difficult. Now, of course, we can distinguish short-term problems from long-term problems, but would anybody like to offer any concluding reflections? Maybe shows you have a very smart panel. Yes, <laughs> I think we do. Moderator no, I do excluded. I do agree with David. I think there's a tendency of every generation to see its problems as uniquely oppressive, and uh, in fact, uh, uh, that's not the case. Uh, we've seen better. We've seen worse. <laughs> and time will tell. Hmm. <laughs> the old journalism coda. Susan, David, do you want to say anything? Uh, the only thing I would say, I mean, I always just like to end on a more positive note. What I do think in the context of this Congress and the environment we live in right now, uh, I think that there's a lot of room for positivity. I think split government is a good thing. And, and as David had mentioned earlier, um, a lot has already gotten done and there's already been compromise and there's been a, some ability to work together. So I do think that when you're talking about the personalities involved, one being Barack Obama, another being John Boehner, Aside from everything else going on, these are two personalities that I do think have a genuine interest in trying to achieve something. Whether we achieve the big fiscal questions that face this nation, I don't think that's going to happen this year. But I do think that there's an ability to make progress, and I think progress is a good thing. So we'll see. Yeah, and just think David wrote a column recently about how if you had deadlock in the Congress, the uh, deficit would actually improve. The short term deficit in the short term. goes away. Right. So we can be optimistic. We can play it either way. We either get a solution or we don't. Um, well, thank you very much. Uh, and um, uh, I want to thank this uh, extraordinary group of panelists, uh, some of whom traveled very far, and uh, David Brady, who didn't have to travel very far at all, and uh, really added to our dialogue. Once again, I want to thank my Living Brain Trust, Phil Taubman there for helping us put this together, Barbara Kotoka uh, and uh, Mark Dizzuti for, uh, for all the organizational work. And I want to thank the audience for the excellent questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.